talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. A movie by movie and television series by television series hurtle through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm Tim Worthington and this is the second part of a look at Avengers Infinity War. Because really it was a movie that was too big to do in anything other than two instalments. And where we left off, writer Martin Ruddock was just talking about that very fact and the fact that in a lot of ways it does Infinity War a disservice that Avengers Endgame has kind of pushed it out of the spotlight a bit. But as you'll find out, we both got plenty more to say about Infinity War. During all this time, of course, Iron Man, Spider-Man and Doctor Strange still up in space and stowing away on a craft that's going back to Thanos' bigger warship. They're up there for quite a while before anyone actually realises they're there, which is quite an unusual thing with stowaways in films. But you've got more of that brilliant free-headed bickering going on. And, of course, the comeuppance of Space Norman Tebbit. I love this. It's a little kind of nod to the, oh, I saw this really old film gag in Civil War. It's the Empire Strikes Back in Civil War, and this time it's Alien. It's the look they give him when he calls it a really old film as well. Yeah. Which, you know, it is, but they don't like being reminded of that. Just that look is, is perfect. But yeah, seeing the horrible space Norman Tebbit go out into the freezing vacuum is quite a satisfying moment. And there's also a satisfying dig of Batman in it when Doctor Strange asks, what is he, your ward? Which... <laughs> Yeah, some of the, just the digs in it. I mean, again, I think that Stark and Strange is just an inspired choice. I mean, obviously you've got the scene with Quill and Thor is just hilarious. But those two, they're both extremely sarky and very, very well matched. I think in some ways... Benedict Cumberbatch's strange Oza. There is a bit of a debt to Downey's Iron Man, really, isn't there? They're almost, they are quite similar in some ways. Obviously, very, very different characters, but they're played with that slight kind of very snappy know-all swagger. I still do find it weird that Doctor Strange is American. I'm still not really sure about that, but I suppose that's to kind of really distance it more from Sherlock. And they're not the only ones in space, because just arriving at Dabalia, we've got Thor Groot and Rocket in an amazing scene where they arrive at the Weapons Forge and Eitri the Dwarf played by Peter Dinklage is in absolute 
darkness and just a broken, well, I meant to say broken man, but, you know, let's not be speciesist here. A broken giant dwarf. Yes, that's the thing. He is about eight times the size of all of them, but he recognises Thor, and this is the way, again, just doing it with his face, emotionally he goes from relief at seeing him to fury that Asgard didn't defend the forge. And he starts attacking them and just knocking them all over the place. And they eventually convince him to help create, rather than the replacement for Molnir, Stormbreaker, which was, I think, was designed for Thor's father, which is described as the king's weapon, which is an axe that could kill Thanos and to quote E-Tree, in theory, could even summon the Bifrost, which it does. But the forge has gone out. The dying star that powers it isn't lit up. And it takes the ingenuity of all three of them to get it going again so that he can make Stormbreaker. You know, Rocket's kind of daring do bravado of, yeah, I can be flung round in a space pod to gather momentum. Thor, you know, there's that brilliant bit where he volunteers to hold open the gateway to the Dying Star himself. He's told it'll kill you only if I die, which is one of the best <laughs> lines in it. But then Ichi can't find the handle, and Groot, who's just been playing a video game, suddenly comes into his own, just lashes his arm out to create, basically, a tree trunk, and wraps the two bits of this molten, all-powerful metal inside it. And it's such a moment that the, the three, well, two absolute misfit rogues, and one character who's kind of lost his purpose because he's been defeated, just come together to make this almighty weapon. Weapon. And again, Peter Dinklage is fantastic. I mean, the way that this line's like, well done, boy. It's not comical. It's really moving. One of the things that really got me about this when I first saw the film was how much Dinklage actually just has the look of a... He, he looks like he was drawn by Jack Kirby, doesn't he? He's got those kind of like craggy, expressive features. And you give him the long hair and the beard as well. It's a sequence which, if it had been handled wrongly, could really have dragged a little bit because it is mostly some men and some CGI characters having a mild argument in space about how best to kind of build something. It is an A-team tooling up montage, isn't it? But just on a massive scale. And each one of these little moments, I think each one of these sequences in Infinity War, it either ends on a feeling of, oh, shit, or a feeling of hope, doesn't it? Yes, I think there is something in that. And also, the amazing thing about this whole storyline is it just underlines how much is going on in this film it's easy to forget it's actually in it to the extent of there was a Guardians Infinity War Lego set which as well as the Benatar and a couple of other things in it had the forge and the pod to fly off to the forge and I remember seeing it thinking oh yeah that happened in it as well Yeah. and I'd seen the film twice by that point because <laughs> I saw it in the cinema and I went back the next day because I loved it so much but it's like you can only acknowledge so much of it at any one time Yeah. It's even now, just thinking ahead to what we're going to be talking about, I'm thinking, oh yeah, that as well. There's so much happens in it, but nothing feels out of place, and nothing no. feels disjointed from everything else. Again, it's got that feel of the big kind of comic crossover saga, hasn't it? That's a slightly slower moment than some of the others in the film, but it absolutely has its place, and it pays off later on. A film like this has so many jump cuts off to, I mean, I don't even know how many locations there are in this film. It's just absolutely staggering. I mean, obviously you've got Titan, you've got Vormir, you've got Nowhere, there's Deep Space in general, Glasgow, there's New York, there's obviously so much going at Wakanda. I mean, I'm rambling, obviously, but there's such a wide scope. You could actually forget some of the bits in this film, not because they're not memorable, just because there is so much to 
I'm into your head. You could kind of liken it to the way when they did crossover comics. I mean, one thing that it's strangely under-acknowledged about Infinity War and Endgame is they're actually based on an early 90s crossover series called the Infinity Gauntlet. It's only really the basic storyline that's similar because there's a lot of differences between them. I mean, there's a different big bad in it. Nebula plays a very different role. People like Cloak and Dagger have a big role in it that they don't, obviously, in this film. But in around the crossover comics, you get things happening in other comics of characters that weren't involved. You know, something that happened in one that would impact something that happened in Daredevil, maybe, or somebody else that wasn't involved in it, or somebody would have a minor part in the events that was covered in their own comic. They do do that in the TV series as well a bit, where they will acknowledge something that happened in the film and build on it, say, you know, like with Luke Cage being targeted with weapons made from leftover metal from the Battle of New York. But this was kind of as though they'd done away with the main comic. They'd done away with the Infinity Gauntlet, and they concentrated on the tie-in comics round it. All those bits are knitted together. It's almost like that, really. I suppose they've just very broadly taken the concept, and they've kind of knitted it into their own version of the Marvel Universe. I think it's probably the better for it. I mean, it just maybe it would be a little bit less accessible if, I don't know, if, if this was happening to Squirrel Girl on the side. It is a great thing that Marvel have always been able to do these side trips to crossovers and have these little moments where yeah this is just something that kind of grazes the side of the story this is obviously so much more of a it's a big event but it totally captures that whole scope of that secret wars or beyonder type thing which they started doing from the 80s onwards they're all these vast sprawling sagas but everyone had a part to play in it yeah and we never got to find out what happened to people like dominic fortune as a result of it (laughs) (laughs) with a dominic fortune (laughs) (laughs) but then we get to the most upsetting sequence of the whole film which is on Vormir which is where the Soul Stone is Thanos and Gamora meet the Red Skull who have somehow been beamed there after the end of Captain America the First Avenger I love that it doesn't explain how he ended up there why he is the guardian of the Soul Stone but he is and he said that somebody has to give up a person they love in order to get it. Again, not explain why, maybe just pick up the others. But Thanos does the inevitable. Yeah, it's a very upsetting scene. I mean, you can see it absolutely crushes him to do it. I mean, not enough to not do it, but it's clear that the loss of Gamora is not something he wanted to have to do. I mean, again, going back to Thanos in this as the zealot who really thinks he's in the right. He really thinks he's doing the universe a favour by doing this. He reverts a bit to type in Endgame. He becomes a bit more of a kind of generic space bastard to some extent. But in this, I remember just being so knocked out thinking, wow, somebody has actually finally come up with a point for Thanos. He's absolutely wrong. And look at the awful, terrible things he does to get what he wants. But he really does think he's in the right. And I suppose that's why he feels so dangerous, because he really does he's the hero of his story and everyone else are the villains that he's lining up to defeat and meanwhile back on his battleship which is how he got Gamora to comply in the first place he's got Nebula chained up that leads into the next scene because Nebula manages through just through her usual cunning into outsmarting one of the guards and getting the message of the guardians on the blu-ray there's a lovely deleted scene that they cut because it was just too long where it presents a longer version of that where she's trying to get in touch with them and Star-Lord and Drax are arguing about whether Ace Freely from Kiss is a degenerate or not. (laughs) 
while Nebula's frantically trying to get Mantis to answer the alert system. She does, and they head to Titan to meet her there, where they are joined unexpectedly by Doctor Strange, Spider-Man and Iron Man, and a bit of a punch-up ensues. Yeah, because Quill automatically assumes that they're in league with Thanos, and it takes them a little while to realise that they're there for the same reason. It's a very fun little dust-up, isn't it? With Drax shouting, die, blanket of death at Doctor Strange's <laughs> That's when it feels like the film knits together even more because everyone has been very much, you've got a group of three or four characters off doing their own thing. And to actually see them collide is a great thing. I mean, there's loads of zingers, loads of gags in this, loads of sight gags. I mean, the Spider-Man stuff in Infinity War is very watchable, isn't it? Just a, It's a very fun little fight scene before they realise that they're on the same page. Doctor Strange does his Ebenezer good bit. <laughs> And surmises that basically they're fucked. And the other key bit of this is that Iron Man and Star-Lord do not get on because they are so similar. Yeah. And the best bit of that is where he tries to insult him by calling him Flash Gore. And he says, well, that's a compliment. <laughs> and you do suddenly realise at that moment how much of the 1980 Flash Gordon there is in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. They even come up with a workable plan to get the Gordon off Thanos when he inevitably turns up there. And it would work. Everyone has their part to play and they managed to trap him and subdue him. You know, even Mantis actually proves effective in the battle scenario when she puts him in a coma basically. The problem is that because of that, she's able to sense what's happened to Gamora. Tries yeah. not to say but Nebula picks up on it because it's a sister after all. And Star-Lord basically goes rad and starts punching Thanos and brings him back into consciousness which is a plot detail that a lot of people seem to criticise. I think it's a perfectly reasonable reaction in the circumstances. And all also, it's a way of putting some jeopardy back in there, because otherwise they would have beaten him there and then. It makes absolute sense to me. It's his absolute rage and grief over Gamora, contrasting with the fact that Thanos is actually in his own way in bits about her, that ends up kind of dooming them. And they don't let him go without a fight, though, because they basically just try to kill him, even when he's got away from them with the gauntlet. And yeah. there's all kinds of amazing bits, like there's a scene where it's actually, literally, it's blink and you'll miss it, but Star-Lord Drax and Nebula all get up from having been knocked down, looking as though they are fit to kill him with their bare hands. And he just kind of washes them up into the air, and they have to be caught by Spider-Man. Eventually, it's just Iron Man with half his armour hacked off, still fighting him, at which point Thanos touches him on the head and says, you have my respect, Stark. When I'm done, 50% of humanity will still be around. I hope that they remember you. And the fact that, you know, this is the guy, the one guy who poses the most chance of stopping him. And Thanos' attitude is, well, that's only right. I've got to stop you but I've got no problem with you challenging me. And that is quite a moment to think. Cause then that also shows that he's got this very strange moral core. There is no moral, he's completely written the rules on morals there but he does have that basis in a kind of warped logic. It's very much based on the fact, I mean a lot of these people don't even register to Thanos, do they? He's just been basically flicking away like gnats. You do seem to really have to do something to get his respect in his will. He thinks he's like a nobleman of the universe. I don't know, it's almost like a kind of like sword and sorcery thing. You are my enemy, but I have respect for you. Thanos's strange code of who he sees as a worthy opponent, that's a nice touch. He never really is that interesting in the comics, and he's fascinating in Infinity War. He really is a proper character. They've spent quite a while kind of hiding him away, and it's, it's his film. Even down to at the very end, the little James Bond caption, 
Thanos will return. And the fight only ends when Doctor Strange gives him the Time Stone voluntarily and will not explain why, other than mm. to say, we're in the endgame now and there was no other way. Meanwhile, down on Earth, in Wakanda, where they've taken Vision in the hope that the Wakandans will be able to take the Mind Stone out of him, there's a huge battle going on to protect Vision and Shuri while she's trying to remove it. And it is quite an epic battle. And it's in broad daylight as opposed to most of the fights in this film. And just so much happens in it that it's hard to know where to start, really. I mean, it starts basically with something falling from the sky. Bucky and... This is something we've slipped by. Bucky has been reintroduced. I've been in Wakanda since Captain America Civil War, right through Black Panther. He's there fighting with everyone. And him and Falcon run out to see what's falling from the sky. And it hits a force field above Wakanda and explodes. To which Bucky replies i love this place and then the battle kicks off really because they're all outside this force field all the thanos's mass forces trying to get in by pushing kind of rabid dog things through some of them half get through like their arms their limbs and so on yeah. and black panther takes the decision to open the force field to keep them in front of them so they know where they're aiming basically and this huge army of avengers wakandans and everyone else charge at these aliens with teeth that look like they could do damage it's so it's why it's choreographed i mean it's a very 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 long, very, very epic nail-biting battle sequence. There's room for kind of little bit parts for people. I love the fact that it's so seamless. Again, it's the law of physics and everything has cause and effect in this. I think it's one of the best battle scenes I've ever seen. This is them going, okay, this is absolutely broad daylight. Let's have the biggest battle scene you've probably ever seen in a movie. And there's all kinds of small moments in it of character interaction, like Rhodey and Sam are still competitive in the air in their respective tech, while carpet bombing these kind of saber-toothed dog things. But there are a couple of bigger, more prominent moments, one of which is that Wanda suddenly gains control of herself and her abilities, appears on the battlefield, starts taking everyone down. Proxima Midnight knocks her into a ditch and says, you will die alone. Upon which Black Widow and the Koye appear from nowhere and say, she's not alone. And basically the three of them wallop this all-powerful alien, hoist her into the sky, which is killed by one of her own kind of flying razor disc things. It's a great moment. I think Proxima goes a bit too quickly. I would like that battle to go on a little bit longer. It's all undercutting the fact that Wanda has left Vision unattended, where he's probably kind of glancing through the Argus catalogue, going, oh, we're out of stock, Wanda. Sacrifice me to save yourself. But there is a moment where it looks like they are outnumbered. And, you know, you see glimpses of, like, Bucky, the Hulk, Captain America overpowered. It's not going very well. And then suddenly, as this flash from the sky, this multicoloured beam, what comes flying out? That axe from Indavalia just whizzes around, eradicating most of Thanos' army. Suddenly there's Thor, Rocket and Groot, causing Banner to laugh and shout, you guys are so screwed now. Thor just rampages off shouting, bring me Thanos. Which is one of the most iconic moments of the whole film, I think. Especially because Groot runs after him going, Ah! (laughs) And then, of course, after that big moment, you get the meeting of Cap and Groot. I am Groot. I am Steve Rogers. Everybody stay where you are. Chill the F out. I'm going to ask you this one time. Where is Gamora? Yeah, I'll do you one better. Who's Gamora? I'll do you one better. Why is Gamora? Tell me where the girl is, or I swear to you, I'm going to French fry this little freak. Let's do it. You shoot my guy, and I'll blast him. Let's go. Do it, Quill. I can take it. 
No, he can't take it. She's right, you can't. Oh, yeah? You don't want to tell me where she is? That's fine. I'll kill all three of you, and I'll beat it out of Thanos myself, starting with you. Wait, what? Thanos? All right, I, let me ask you this one time. What master do you serve? What master do I serve? What am I supposed to say, Jesus? You're from Earth. I'm not from Earth, I'm from Missouri. Yeah, that's on Earth, dipshit. What are you hassling us for? So you're not with Thanos? With Thanos? No. I'm here to kill Thanos. He took my girl. Wait, who are you? We're the Avengers, man. You're the ones Thor told us about. You know Thor? Yeah. Tall guy, not that good looking. Needed saving. Where is he now? And of course, Thanos then appears because he's got one stone left to get and all he has to do is take out Vision's head. And there's this amazing sequence where it does go slightly into slow motion, very slightly, but one by one, because Wanda finally gives in to Vision trying to sacrifice himself and agrees to just destroy the stone because they've not been able to remove it in time. Just one by one, they all charge at him, knowing they can't stop him. Black Widow gets literally one foot in front of him and he kind wraps her up in bits of rock I think and they're all just flung aside he brings War Machine and Falcon down from the sky he uses the stones on some people actually Captain America seems to stand a good chance of physically restraining him but even he gets swatted away but the real amazing moment is which I think I'd didn't really notice the first time I saw it. The last challenger is Groot steps up and just to buy a few more seconds, flings vines out of his arms, which Thanos immediately snaps off. You know, you don't even see Groot's face, but you get the impression that's bloody painful. Yeah. That is, just, you know, the comedy, comic relief character does that to try and stop the big bad. And that just buys Wonder enough time. But unfortunately, Thanos has the time stone. It's really just that moment that you kind of know is absolutely coming, but it still kind of stops you in your tracks, doesn't it? I mean, of course, Thanos is going to do that. Thanos is very casually going to just rewind things and to get what he wants. The way you rips it out of Vision's head as well yeah. causing more damage than he needs to and you see just that void of wires where the stone used to be yeah that's quite nasty isn't it and then obviously he's about to snap his fingers when Thor appears flings Stormbreaker at him it embeds itself in his chest now there is debate over whether Thanos actually says you should have gone for the head or you should have gone for the hand it's the head it sounds like it's the head but the hand would make more sense really because it's got the gauntlet on it which he then snaps his fingers and I remember when this happened in the cinema hearing somebody shout oh shit <laughs> yeah. genuinely with that taken aback and suddenly people just start blinking out of existence and the way it's done is quite shocking it starts with all the Wakandans start disappearing and Mbaku looks like you know he's just a warrior who's come down from the mountains to help out he can't figure out what's going on everyone sort of disappears in their own kind of gut-wrenching way and the ones that really stand out a Bucky just turning to Captain America and saying Steve and just falling and yeah as though he's reverted back into being Bucky Barnes the soldier from the Second World War because he doesn't understand it but the other one is Groot just weakly saying I am Groot and vanishing and Rocket just sobbing no 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 and going towards him I'm told by friends of mine who took their kids to see that their kids were crying especially when we come into the next bit where everyone on Titan starts vanishing 
they're more emotional wrecks in some ways. And, you know, you get Mantis saying something's happening because she feels it before it actually mm. happens. Drax just sounds lost. But the bit that really, really got me was that Tony Stark turns around and says, steady Quill. You know, he's obviously thinking, whatever the hell is happening, I don't get on with this guy. But I need him. Whatever's coming next, he's going to be useful to have around. And then Quill just says, oh, man, and starts disappearing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we lose Doctor Strange as well. And then Spider-Man just tumbles out, sobbing. They do say in the commentary, you're supposed to take away from it, that he's using the fact he is technically cross-species to try mm. and fight it. And he's just sobbing and shaking and saying, I don't want to go. And you remember at that point, he's a schoolboy. They're all world-weary adults. And it's just left with Tony Stark and Nebula just looking absolutely lost in the middle of space. No way of getting off this planet. And it cuts back to the Avengers doing much the same in Wakanda. Well, I say the Avengers, what's left of them? And that's kind of the note we're left on. You do kind of feel every single one of the Spider-Man is just heartbreaking. I mean, obviously Tom Holland plays him so well. The scene between, you know, Stark just watching helplessly as Peter disappears into dust, saying that he doesn't want to go. People say these films don't have proper emotional content. Fuck off, you know, really? Fuck off, Ken. Just that downer ending. I mean, you've got the cutaway where Thanos... It's that, that little pagoda, isn't it, that he appears in Love's Dream World and he meets child Gamora and she asks him if he got what he wanted and was there a cost. He sort of wearily admits that there was. But the way it leaves, what's left of the Avengers and by extension, what's left of the universe, it really takes some guts to do a big downer ending like that doesn't it it does except right after the credits which i do wonder if because they're so long and there's no mid-credit scenes in it i do wonder how many people actually stayed for this before they knew it was there but right at the end there's a glimmer of hope when we meet nick fury and maria hill in new york who've noticed unusual activity over wakanda and then the great throwaway line fury's halfway through saying tell klein we'll meet him at now klein is the shield agent from captain america the winter soldier who refused just at gunpoint to do what Hydra are telling him to, which is a lovely callback, but they're hit by a driverless car. They get out of the car to see people disappearing, helicopters crashing into buildings and so on. Maria starts disappearing. Fury runs to his car, gets out a weird pager, presses a couple of buttons, starts disappearing, gets as far as mother... And then we cut in on the pager. Now, did you recognise when you first saw it what was going on there? Yeah, I didn't know at that point that Captain Marvel was going to be set in the 90s. So the pager thing originally left me a little bit. Why is it a pager? But the logo coming up on it, I absolutely recognise that. Yeah, it is that little glimmer of hope. Of course, you know that it can't be entirely lost because you already know about the other film. But this feels real. This feels like, okay, we've given you the Marvel Universe and we've just killed most of it in front of you. But if anyone can get them out of it, it's Carol Danvers. But we'll be finding out more about that in Endgame. But Martin, there's only one thing left to ask now. If you had a gauntlet with six all-powerful stones that could control all of reality, what would you use it for? I could do a little bit of rain. (laughs) (laughs) Today, it's rain. (laughs) I think everyone knows when we recorded this now. Martin, thank you, and Excelsior. Thank you, Tim.
enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of Discord Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.